Well, it's good to be here with you. I've been looking forward to coming and being here. And uh, I was trying to think if I've ever been here before. I'm not quite sure that I have. I may have been here with an SMBI choir tour way back in the late 80s. I'm not sure. My wife sends her greetings. Uh, some of you probably know her. She was lived in the Harrisonburg, Virginia area for quite a while. And I think she probably knows more of you than what I do. Um, I thought she was going to be able to come along this weekend, and some other plans came up that, that uh, she's not able to be here, so she sends her greetings to you. Um, I do have some handouts, so maybe, Nathan, do you want to hand those out? Yeah. Um, the, as far as what we're going to be covering, to give you a little bit of an idea, when I teach the book of First John, I usually have 14 sessions of an hour and a half, so that's 21 hours, and I've only got four sessions this weekend, so if you divide 21 by four, you get five and a quarter hours. So I'm looking at the time. We'll be here till about one o'clock. If <laughs> uh, so, you can see I'm obviously going to have to cut back on the material, and we're really not going to be able to cover the whole book. And I'm not even going to try to cover the whole book. It's not going to be possible. But we are going to try to get the highlights and particularly follow through the theme of assurance of salvation. That's going to be the focus although there's going to be other topics related to that that we're going to cover as well. Um, so First John is definitely the primary book that we're going to be looking at. Uh, obviously, some other scriptures are going to come in as well. In fact, this evening we're going to be looking at several stories from the Gospel of John to kind of set the stage a little bit for what we want to talk about. I think what you're getting now is is uh, I actually have 10 pages of notes for the weekend. What you're getting now is the first five pages, which will probably be what we cover uh, tonight and tomorrow night, I believe. So just looking at that a little bit, Tonight is, is really some introductory material, and introducing the book, introducing the book as well as the theme of the book. So we'll be working on the first three pages there, and it, it's really up to you. Uh, different people learn different ways. If you want to take notes, uh, that's what this is for. Some people, if they take notes, can't listen as well. So, I mean, I'm not going to be offended if you don't take notes. You do what, it, what works best for you in, in your learning style. I'm much more of a teacher than a preacher, so that's why the chalkboard's up here. I can't keep my hands still. I've got to be writing something down. So I'm going to use the board sometimes for illustrations and so on. Um, Tomorrow night, the topic is going to be pages four and five, forgiveness of sin. And I would say that's, a, that's a, probably the, a very critical subject. Well, not probably, it is a very critical subject as far as 
the theme for the weekend. Sunday morning will be, and you don't have these pages, six and seven, are overcoming sin. So we're going to talk about forgiveness of sin, then we're going to talk about living a victorious Christian life. And then Sunday afternoon will be several different topics, our hearts and confidence toward God, the problem of fear, and then closing out the book with an introduction to spiritual warfare. I begin there on page one with a little story that comes out of, I don't know this story personally, it came out of a, uh, some reading that I had done. Um, suppose you had been working as a missionary in a tribal village and one young man had become a Christian convert. He was young in the faith and struggling and yet seemed to want to follow God. You hear several weeks later that the witch doctor in that village put a spell on him and now the young convert is laying in his hut very, very sick. Now, several things that we need to realize, and I think you're very well aware of this, the evil world is very real, witch doctors are very real, and they do have a power behind them. And maybe we wonder why, and I don't believe they have power over Christians as such, but if there's weakness or if there's sin or something going on, yes, they can. And whatever the situation, this is what happened. Now, you're in a different village and you're the missionary, uh, what would you do? The witch doctor has threatened to put the same spell on anyone who tries to, help, to, tries to help the young man. So if you go into the village, he's going to do the same thing to you. Now, what would you do? Um, I hope that we would have the strength and courage in God to go into that village and confront the evil and bring the spirit of God and help that young man and perhaps heal him, pray for him. Now, maybe you're wondering what that scenario has to do with the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, uh, I'm talking about 1 John here, the epistle of 1 John, I should say, is primarily about assurance of salvation. That's the theme we're going to talk about. But assurance of salvation is not an end in itself. The goal isn't just to know that you're going to heaven. That's not really the end result of what John is wanting. And we'll see that as we, go, as we go through the book. He wants to lead us deeper in our Christian lives. He wants us to live without fear. He wants us to live in victory above sin. And, and he wants us to get involved in the warfare for the kingdom of God. I'm going to go to the bottom of page one there. I'm going to, I'm going to go to 1 John chapter 2 to start. 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. The first, probably the first half dozen times I taught 1 John, I, when I taught these three verses, I just kind of skipped over because as uh, just kind of extra material, didn't really know, know what it was there for, and just kind of went on to what I thought was more important material. But then some things started clicking, and I started seeing that I think what John is actually giving us in these verses is sort of an outline of the whole book. And that's, that's kind of where I want to start here, I think, to give us a, a feel for what the book is about as a whole. 
So we, we pick up here in 1 John 1, no, chapter, 1 John 2, verse 12. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because ye have known the Father. I have written unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. There's three groups of people that he's writing to here. The first is young children, and then young men, and then fathers. And when you look at the context of the whole book, I don't think he's talking so much about chronological age as he is talking about spiritual age. And that's at least how I'm going to interpret these verses. So we're, we're giving this the, the title of the three stages of Christian growth. So the first one there, the first stage is little children. Or we could call it um, new Christians, young Christians, maybe immature Christians. But anyway, it's, it's talking about those who have, have just come to Christ. I don't think it's so much carnal Christians. That's not the idea of it. It's just those that are young in the faith. And there are, there are two things here, and, I, and you, I've got them there on your, on your paper. There are two things that John writes to them. In verse 12, he says, your sins are forgiven you. And 13, you have known the Father. Now, if you think about those a little bit, think about the first one, your sins are forgiven you. Why is that so important to children? Because it's the issue of forgiveness. It's really talking about the issue of assurance of salvation. Do you really understand the forgiveness of Christ and that he has forgiven your sins? That's what he's talking about there. And the second one there that he writes to children is you have known the Father. That's your concept of who God is. Now, I don't think any of us, in fact, I know none of us have a completely correct concept of God. Who God is is very unfathomable. It's, but, uh, you know, I, I know in my growing up years, I pictured God, at least one of the pictures I had of God was of a stern judge up in heaven just waiting for me to do something wrong and maybe even hoping I did something wrong so that he could give me a good licking. And that's not the heart of God. That's, that's a very warped picture of who God is. So at that stage in the Christian life, the concept of God and a correct concept of God is very important. As we go through the book, both of those issues are dealt with in the book. The issue of forgiveness is dealt with mostly in chapter 1 
which is what we're going to cover tomorrow night, the issue of the concept of the father is kind of scattered throughout the book, but particularly at the end of chapter 3, we get a little glimpse into who the father is in our concept of the father. So those are very important issues in relation to early stages of the Christian life. Stage two, the young men's stage, and there's, there are, he, he talks to the young men here twice in this passage. The first time he says, you, you have overcome the wicked one. The second one, he says, you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And he again repeats himself, you have overcome the wicked one. Now, if you start thinking about what that is saying there, the wicked one is obviously the devil, the devil and his demons. And you are strong. The picture I get is of a soldier out in battle. The young men's stage is really those who are fighting in the kingdom of God. They are on the front lines of Christian warfare. They're involved in service for the kingdom. They're not a couch potato sitting in their living room. Not at all. And the, the, the goal of John seems to be to move us from stage one to stage two. That's the primary goal of this book is to move his audience from stage one up to stage two. Now, he does write a little bit about past that, I think, but primarily that's the theme of the book. Stage three, then, is the stage of father. So stage one is is young children. Stage two is young men. Stage three is fathers. And to fathers, he says the same thing twice, in basically the same words, you have known him that is from the beginning. Now that's a little bit similar to what he wrote to children, you have known the father, but the difference is he puts in that phrase, you have known him that is from the beginning. The emphasis seems to be you've known him for a long time. There's a sense of maturity in the relationship. And the fathers have have gone through the young men's stage, and it's not that it's not that they're not in spiritual warfare for anymore. No, not at all. But they, they are mature. They've been out there. And a father is someone who has reproduced himself. You can't really get to the father stage until you have reproduced yourself spiritually, until you've led, led people to Christ and are involved in the, king, in the work for the kingdom of God. So let's, uh, let's put this into a little diagram that we'll kind of use and refer to in the book kind of as we, as we go through it. Um, okay, the three boxes represent the uh, three stages. So in the first one here, you want to put little children, not young children. Little children. The second box is young men. And the third box is fathers. And we're just going to connect them with arrows. Now, the, 
uh, we'll see this in a little bit. It's, it's pretty clear that John is writing to Christians. So the little children are born again. So in order to get into this box, this first arrow represents the new birth. That arrow is being born again, putting our faith in Jesus Christ. Then it's, it's right here on this arrow right here that John is primarily focusing on in this book. Not exclusively, but we could even write First John on that book. His goal is to move us from the stage of little children up here to the stage of young men. And the stage of young men is spiritual warfare. He does write a little bit, and we'll focus on this maybe on Sunday afternoon just a little bit. He does probably focus a little bit on that last arrow of how to move us into the stage of fathers. And one thing I might say, it's not, it's not necessarily like you can look at this chart and figure out actually where you're at. You may be down here at one area in your life, Another area you may be here. It's not like you can necessarily plug in and say, well, so-and-so is in this stage. That's not really the point. The point is this is, is, a, is a graph of how we move forward in maturity. We may be at different areas in different, in different places. Um, that's a little bit at least how I, how I am viewing uh, this situation. So I give you this at the beginning because... It gives us a good overview of, of the goal of the book. The goal of the book is really that we might move into the stage of young men, be strong, be clothed in the armor of God, and be out fighting against the forces of evil in our world today. That's really the goal. But if you have, in, in physical warfare, if you have a soldier that is afraid to die, if you have an army and all of your soldiers are afraid to die, and you send them against an enemy, and the gunshots start ringing out, they're going to turn tail and run really quickly because of fear. If you have, if you have uh, Christians... Okay, thank you. If you have Christians that are afraid to die because they're not sure of their eternal destiny, it's going to be, they're not going to do well in spiritual warfare because they don't have a solid, secure base. And so what John is trying to do is to give us that solid, secure base of security in Christ. That's the goal of the book. There are a lot of different themes in this book. There's some doctrinal themes but we're going to primarily focus on that theme of assurance of salvation and kind of trying to follow through uh, what we're looking at here in this chart a little bit. If you go, to, go on to page two. Let's go back to chapter one and just read the opening part of the book here. We're going to look at the overall purpose of the book as it is stated in the book. 
that which was from the beginning, verse 1 of chapter 1, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifest, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. Go back to verse 1 and look at what John says. He's emphasizing something. Now, when you have the pronoun we in there, John's referring not only to himself, but probably to all the disciples. He's probably, that's what my best guess about what he means by we have heard. He's probably talking about those that were with Christ. What, what he's saying is, I was with Jesus. I heard his very words. I saw him with my own eyes. Now, John is writing this toward the end of the first century, and it's been probably 50 to 60 years since Christ had crucified and resurrected. A whole new generation was living that had not been present when Christ died and was resurrected. If you go back in our history, 60 years, and you know that goes back to the 19, well, 50s and 60s back in there. And I'd ask how many of you were here and remember events. Some of you would. A lot of you would. You weren't even born yet. Well, so that's why John says it. Now, they had probably heard about Jesus. They knew he had come. And obviously they were believers. But John is saying, I was there. I... I walked with Jesus. I heard his words. I touched him. And then he goes on to say in verse 3, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you. What John is saying is that I was there with him. I touched him. I felt him. In fact, in the Gospel of John, it's recorded that (coughs) at the Last Supper, he had his head against the breast of Jesus. When you have your head against someone's breast, you can probably hear or feel their heartbeat. Can you imagine hearing, feeling the heartbeat of the Son of God? So John, that's, it's, it's a very intimate association. But what he's saying is that what I, what I got from Jesus, that message that I heard and saw and felt, that's what I'm going to tell you about. That's what this book is about. It's not just John's own ideas. It's what he got from that time with Christ. And then he gives two purposes, that ye may have fellowship with us and truly truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And then you have verse 4. And these things write we unto you. Now he's going to give his a purpose for writing. He says, I'm I'm writing these things that your joy may be full. 
Now go with me to 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13. This is often used, and it's kind of at the end of the book, at the end of the main section of the book, where he again gives his purpose and audience for writing. And these two don't contradict each other. I think they're complementary purposes from what we have there in verse 4. Now, 5.13, you'll notice it's not at the end of the book. We've got, uh, basically, he kind of is concluding here in verse 13, but then verses 14 to 17 are sort of an appendix to the book. He adds, and and those are the verses we're actually going to look at uh, probably Sunday afternoon. We'll look a little bit at those those last things that he says. But verse chapter 5, verse 13, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. So it's very clear he's writing to those that already believe. So on your paper there, you'll see that who is the book written to. It's written to those that believe, or it's written to believers or to Christians. This is not a book that is written the intended for unbelievers. Now, unbelievers can read it and they can benefit from it, but the purpose of the book, it was written for believers. In fact, if you take some of the teachings about forgiveness and so on and try to teach them an unbeliever, it just doesn't work because they don't have forgiveness. What is the purpose of the book? I would say the purpose of the book is, and you can probably write this in various ways. We, we have, we've found two phrases. One is that your joy may be full, and the other is, now I didn't actually read the rest of thir- verse 13 there. Let me finish. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. So he's writing so that you might know that you have eternal life or that you might know that you're saved, that you might know that you're going to heaven, that you might know that you have a relationship with the Father. And how is that connected with a full joy? I think that should be quite obvious. If you don't really know if you're going to heaven, if you don't really know if you know the Father, you're not going to have deep joy. But if you have a deep sense of knowing and assured of your salvation, that's going to produce joy. So however you want to put that as the purpose of the book, that I... Simply, I would, if you want to just put it so that we can know that we're saved, that's one way to put it. But I, it's even more than that we know that we're saved. It's so that we might have a full salvation and be assured that we have a relationship with God. And it, it's a whole lot more than knowing that we're going to heaven. Yeah, that's part of it. But he wants a whole lot more than that uh, in this book. So that's, that's the purpose of the book. Uh, I didn't really give you a summary of 1, 1 to 4. I was talking about however you want to put that summary. John's saying, basically, I would, what, what I think those verses are saying is, the message that I'm giving you, I heard directly from Christ. I was there. I touched him. I saw him. That's really what, what I was thinking there. I'm going to go back to the Gospel of John. And read you a verse. You can turn here if you want, but you can just listen as well if you want. In John chapter 20 and verse 30 and 31, when John wrote the Gospel of John, 
he had a very different purpose in mind and a different audience. And it's very clear if you look at, at the ending of the book. Here's what he writes at the end of John, of the end of John chapter 20. He says, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. So he wrote the Gospel of John so that you might believe, in other words, so that you might put your faith in Jesus Christ. His primary audience in John is non-Christians, those who do not believe, and his, the purpose of his writing is to bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. And that's why the Gospel of John is a very excellent book to give to someone who is not a believer. It's a primary place for unbelievers to start reading because you go through the, the Gospel of John, that's the whole purpose of why he writes. Jesus, you have the story of Nicodemus, you have the story of the Samaritan woman, you have stories of Jesus lovingly confronting people and giving them the good news of the kingdom of God. And you have people's responses and what happened. And the whole goal of the book is to bring us to faith in Jesus Christ. Very different purpose in 1 John. The purpose of 1 John, written to believers, so that we might have a full and deep assurance of salvation. What I'm going to do for now is I'm going to skip over to page 3. I want to make sure to cover all of page 3 tonight. Uh, we may get back to the rest there of page 2. If not, we'll do that tomorrow night. What, what I'm attempting to do here, the title at the top says Salvation and How to Attain It. Before we really get into First uh, John, I want to lay a little bit of a foundation, and this is primarily from the Gospel of John. Uh, so really what I'm talking about here is this arrow right here. What is the new birth? How do you obtain the new birth? What is faith and so on? I think, I think we need to lay a little bit of a foundation for that in order to to be able to understand and apply a little bit later some of the things we're getting in, in 1 John. So the first thing you see there is believing in Jesus Christ, finding salvation, the Gospel of John. If I would ask you what does it take, what is necessary in order to be born again? I, I do this sometimes with my students. I ask them to tell me what you have to do in order to be born again. And they'll give me a few things. You need to have faith. You need to repent. You need to believe. And I, and I, I, I keep you know, digging and getting, and, and I, I've come up with a list of 15 to 20 things you have to do in order to be saved. We have them all on the board, and, you know, and then when you look at that, when you actually step back and look at it, it's like, whew, you mean all that? And then I take them to the story of the Philippian jailer in Acts when Paul just told him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And, oh, is it? really that simple well yeah it's that simple but we have to understand what the word believe really entails 
And that's what I'm trying. That's what we want to try to do a little bit here, by looking at some things from the Gospel of John. Uh, go with me to John chapter one, and verse twelve. kind of jumping in the middle of uh, the kind of John's opening to the book here, but I'm after only this one verse. Well, I might read verse 11. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. He came unto the Jewish people. The Jewish people rejected him. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Now, I, I remember when I was young and that point, I mean, there's still some traveling salesmen around, but traveling salesmen were much more prevalent and, and around that time. Remember one particular man, he had, a, he had an old car and it was piled full of brushes and brooms and every sort of uh, cleaning supplies and so on that you can imagine. And I remember at least, it's kind of vague in my memory now, but I think he came to our place two or three times. You know, every, several year, every several years he would show up. And, and I'm, I'm thinking that, I know he had an injury. I think he, had, he couldn't walk right. There was, I, I can't quite remember what it was, but you know, he, would, he would come into, into our house, uh, come to the door, and I almost remember sometimes even that my, my mom would come out to the car and talk to him. But, you know, he, he, he wanted us to buy some brooms and brushes and whatever else. And Well, you know, my mom kind of had what she needed. She didn't need any of his wares, but, you know, should help support this man who has an injury and is handicapped and... So, you know, I, I remember she would, you know, he, he'd, he'd go through his, his uh, pep talk and offer things. And, you know, and I, I, don't, I don't remember for sure, but I imagine he gave, you know, I'll give you 10% off of that. I don't know how he did it, but he was a pretty good salesman, as I remember it. And eventually, you know, I can remember, picture my mom walking away with a couple of the brooms and brushes. And she didn't really need them. Yeah, she was able to use them, but. Uh, now, I, I think when I first read this verse, that's kind of the picture I had. I pictured Jesus as a, a brush salesman coming to the door and trying to, uh, trying to sell salvation. And, you know, he, he tries to kind of uh, convince you... Um, and, you know, eventually you kind of say, well, oh, okay, I guess you can come in. I'll be a Christian. Um, that's actually not what this verse is saying at all. The KJV word there, receive, um, it, it's, it's an older English use of the word. But the, uh, 
the Greek word that's used there is lambano, which the literal meaning of that word means to take or to get hold of. That's what Strong's Concordance says. It means to take or to get hold of. Now, if you, if you read the verse that way, it's this, but not as many as received Christ. It's not a passive receiving. It's a grabbing hold of. But as many as grabbed hold of Christ, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God. Several times with my, I also teach the Gospel of John. Several times in my class, I've actually, I've actually taken this scenario and, and had, a, had one of the cooks or someone come to the door with a bunch of brooms and brushes, you know, and, and I play the part of the, oh, no, I don't really need anything. But, you know, they eventually they convince me and I take something, kind of walk away half with my head down, you know, and play, the, play it that way. Then I have them come again. And then this time, before they can even hardly get the words out of their mouth, I say, I want that one. And I'm grabbing the brushes out of their hand. And, you know, I, I, I want them. Uh, and I grab a hold of them. And that's what this verse is actually saying. Faith is not just a passive standing back. Oh, well, let's see. Maybe I'll take Christ as my Savior. No, it's as many as grabbed a hold of him. It's an aggressive act of the whole personality. It's an actively coming to God on his terms. It's desperately realizing our need of Christ. And when we see him at the door grabbing hold of him because we have a need. It's not, it, the picture isn't of someone coming who is self-sufficient and maybe I can add Christ to to my shelf of other gods that I worship, and now I'll worship him if I want to. That's not the picture here at all. So that's what we see in John chapter 1, verse 12. He equates that receiving at the end of the verse. He says, even to them that believe on his name. The grabbing hold of Christ is a picture of what it means to believe. The second one there I have is John chapter 9 the healed blind man. This is a story we're probably familiar with. I'm not going to read this whole thing. I'm just going to point out a couple of things and kind of try to remind us of the story here. Starting in chapter 9, verse 1, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. The disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither had this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay and said, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. He went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. Now that's the essence of the story. Jesus heals this blind man. 
Now, the rest of the chapter is really a follow-up conversation between the Pharisees and the parents and the neighbors and people who interacted with this man. Evidently, when he was healed, it, it doesn't seem like he really knew who Jesus was. In fact, in verse 11, well, okay, in verse, let me pick up in verse 9, the neighbors were kind of arguing about this. Who is this guy? He's, he's healed now, they were arguing. Verse, but then in verse 10, they said, Therefore said they unto him, How were thine eyes open? So they asked him, So how were your eyes open? And he said, A man that is called Jesus made clay, anointed mine eyes, and said unto me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed, and I received sight. Now you notice the simplicity of his story? He says a man called Jesus. He didn't even say he's, he didn't even really know who he was. He just knew his name was Jesus. He's going down the road and someone, he, he did what he was told. Uh, he, he told me to go wash in the pool of Siloam. I did and I see. He just testified to what he knew. Pretty simple. You go on down to verse 17 and um, well, let me read, read verse 16. Therefore said some of the Pharisees, this man is not of God because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Now they're talking about Jesus. Others said, how can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them. And so they say unto the blind man again, what sayest thou of him that he hath opened thine eyes? So they're arguing about Jesus. You know, he, he can't be a, a prophet because you know, they didn't like him. He was pointing on their sin and, and the blind man says, he's a prophet. Now, how did he figure that out? Well, if someone tells you in a loving way to go wash and you come back seeing, he said, it's not hard for me to know who this, he isn't, you know, he's a prophet. He just makes a simple statement. He doesn't really know a whole lot more than that. You, you go down through the rest of the, the, the dialogue there, um, Verse 24, I just pick up a couple things here. Then again called they the man that was blind. They call him back again. Now this was after the parents wouldn't, wouldn't give him an answer. They said, the parents said he's of age, ask him. So they call the blind man back again uh, and said unto him, give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. <laughs> so they, they want him to say it was, it was God and that Jesus is a sinner. And, and look at the blind man's answer. Whether be he a sinner or not, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. Then they said to him again, what did he do to thee? How opened he thine eyes? Now, he says, I told you already. He had already told them, probably at least once and maybe a couple times. And they keep asking him and asking him. And now this, this blind man who is uneducated, probably poor, he gives the Pharisees a little lecture. I told you already and you did not hear. Wherefore would you hear it again? Now, the King James says, will ye also be his disciples? Uh, an, an extended translation of that would be, it, it's, it's rather, he's not being sarcastic, that's not the word, but he says something like this, you don't want to be his disciples, do you? It's a, it's a rhetorical question. And he, he kind of throws it, why are you asking me all this stuff? Keep, keep asking about him. Do you guys want to be his disciples too? And... <laughs> Then they reviled him and said, Thou art his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. That really got him. And at, at that point, uh, they, they became quite angry with him. 
He says in verse 39, the man answered and said unto them, Why, herein is a marvelous thing, that ye know not from whence he is, and yet he hath opened my eyes. Now we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. This guy is giving these Pharisees a good lecture. And he, he's just saying it straightforward what he saw and heard. He's not. He's, what I want to show you by this account is faith is rather simple. Faith isn't intellectual, it's not knowledge, it's simply looking at what Jesus does in our lives and and believing in him. And if you go on to verse 38, uh, when Jesus met the man, (laughs) uh, let me pick up in verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, so they cast him out of the temple. Jesus heard they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said unto him, evidently this is the first time after the healing that, that the guy meets Jesus. He said, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? And he answered, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? See, he doesn't know Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. He just simply took things at face value. Believing isn't that difficult. It's simple, straightforward. You don't... uh, You don't have to have a college degree. You don't have to have a high school diploma. You don't even have had to go to school. You don't have to have riches. You don't have to have any of those things. Uh, The the other thing I see in this account, sometimes down through here, the blind man says, you know, in in verse 12, he says this. They said, and where is he? He said, I know not. Verse 25, again, one time he said, I don't know. You don't have to know everything. You don't have to know everything to come to faith in Christ. So what I, what I, what I want, uh, the question is, what do we learn about believing from this story? Believing is simple. It's straightforward. It's not difficult. It doesn't take, doesn't take uh, a college degree. But it's simply taking what God is doing and what he has done at face value. Let me look at a third account in John chapter 4. And I'm only giving you a few things. The whole gospel of John, that's what it does. It, it, when you study it carefully, it develops what true belief really is. True belief isn't just mental assent that Jesus came to earth and that he died and rose again, and I believe those historical facts and hence I'm born again. That's not what a true saving faith is. It's a whole lot more than that. John chapter 4 And verse 46 to 54 is the story of the nobleman. And I'm going to read that in its entirety. John chapter 4, verse 46. So Jesus came again unto the king of Galilee, where he made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him. And that besought is he kept on. He kept on begging him that he would come down and heal his son. For he was at the point of death. Then said Jesus unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. Jesus kind of gives him a test. And says, you know, Unless I do miracles, you won't believe. The nobleman said unto him, Sir, come down ere my child die. He kind of just keeps on going. He says, Come down, and my child's going to die if you don't come down. Jesus said unto him, Now, Jesus didn't say it this way, but I'm going to, I'm going to say it this way to, for you to get the sense of maybe what this meant to this man. Jesus said to him, just get out of here. Your son's healed. Now, Jesus didn't say it the way I did, but he said, go your way. 
He doesn't go down. He doesn't do what this man said. He says, go on home. Your son's healed. What the world is that? And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. Now there is someone who has a deep faith. Jesus, Jesus first of all, said, unless except you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. And the guy keeps hanging in there. And then Jesus says, okay, go, go on home. Your son's healed. And he goes home. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in the which Jesus had said unto him, Thy son liveth. And himself believed and his whole house. Now, um, here's a question for you to think about a little bit. I think sometimes we kind of, we sometimes think these people in Scripture had just some sort of magnificent faith and were so different than you and I. And, and, but when that man turned around and started going home, do you think he knew that his son was healed? Now, when I say that, I, may, I, ask, I ask it this way. Do you think he had just a deep 100% knowing that his son was healed? Or was he simply going on faith? When you look at the story carefully, I'm, I'm, and, and I don't want to read something into it, but when you look at the story carefully of what happened, I don't think that he knew for sure, actually, that his son was healed until, if, if you look at verse, at verse, um, verse 32 there, then he inquired of the hour when he began to admit. The servant comes and says, and says your son's healed. Uh, when? When? When was this? He starts asking, inquiring, trying to find out. And when he finds out the time, boom, then he knows that it was Jesus. So I don't think, I don't think, what, what I want to say here about this story is faith is not necessarily, Jesus says, go your way and your son's healed. Boom, I got 100% faith, it's easy, and I just turn and walk away. I don't think that's what happened to this nobleman. I think, he, yes, he believed, but faith has a sense of desperation, this man was desperate. When you look at the story, here's someone whose son is dying and he's desperate for help. He, he, and to him, the, 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 if I can just get Jesus to my house, he must have heard about Jesus. If I can just get him there, then I think my son will get healed. When Jesus says, go your way, it, it, kind, of, it kind of probably blew him away. He didn't know what to do with it. But he acted in faith and left. But I wonder what was going on inside his heart as he was walking home. 
I, I imagine there were wrestlings in his heart and in his mind. What really is happening here? But he acted. Faith acts, even when it doesn't have a hundred percent assurance. So what what I what I want to say about that story is is you know, a couple of things I've said, but primarily I want you to see that faith has in it an element of desperation. You can't really have true, deep biblical faith until there's a sense of desperation and need. That's when you're going to get a true, deep faith. And obviously, that's what's going to cause you to grab a hold of Christ. John here is talking about real believing, a deep believing in Christ. Go with me to Mark chapter 1. So what we're trying to do again is develop what true belief is and get a little bit of a picture of what, because really that is the foundation for a lot of uh, what John is talking about then. He, he's, he's writing a little children who have that kind of a faith. You've got to have that fine kind of a faith for a true conversion. There's got to be a sense of desperation, of need, and a sense of grabbing hold of Christ. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. This is early in Jesus' ministry. In the opening preaching of Jesus, he says this, verse 15, and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye, and believe the gospel. There Jesus uses the word believe plus the word repent. And I want to look a little bit at the connection between the two. Uh, so, here's my mark. The word repent, now I'm, I'm giving you the definition of the Greek word repent, which is metania, something like that. It literally means to think afterwards or to think differently. I have that on the paper there. It means to think differently or it means a change of mind. The word repent is actually a pretty deep word. Uh, it doesn't mean, I, I, sometimes we made this word into a, primarily an external change of behavior. Or sometimes I've heard it defined as turning around and going the opposite way. And there's a sense where that is correct. But the literal meaning is to change your mind or to change your way of thinking. That's actually the root meaning of repent. You see, you see, what Jesus is telling them here is that you've got to change your way of thinking. Now, the audience that he's, he is talking to are people who were looking for a physical kingdom to come. They were looking for a physical king. And Jesus says, you've got to change your way of thinking. If an unbeliever is going to come to Christ, they're going to have to change their way of thinking. They can, they can change their external behavior and join a church and do everything just right, but if they don't change their way of thinking, they haven't really repented. Uh, let me, I'm going, to, I'm going to just do a very simple diagram.
you'll soon learn I'm not a very good artist. But uh, use a circle to represent the world and a triangle to represent God. This guy's got his eyes, his gaze on the world. Now, how are you going to bring him to faith in Christ? How are you going to bring him to become a Christian? You can preach to him and say you need to believe on Jesus Christ. And you can keep preaching and telling him all the, what he needs to do. You can tell him the story of Christ. But he's not going to believe until what happens first. He can't bring his gaze down here until he quits looking at the world. In other words, he's got to repent. He's got to change his way of thinking. He's got to change his way of thinking from that the, the world brings fulfillment and realize that's wrong. So, and then he can put his faith in Jesus Christ. So that, however you want to diagram that, that, that shift in thinking. He's got to get his focus off of the world before he can believe in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. Paul writing here says, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Probably a fairly familiar verse to us that we use quite often. The, the first phrase there, be not conformed to this world. The word conformed there actually means an outward external conforming. And that's why I was using this diagram. It's exactly what this fellow was doing. He was looking to the world, and externally, the things that he did, he was conforming his way of life to the world. Now, what the, again, an extended translation here, looking at the verb tenses, would read something like this in the first phrase. And quit conforming yourselves to this world. Paul tells them to stop doing something they were in the progress of doing. So this is what his audience, or at least some of them, was doing. And he says, stop that. Stop looking, conforming yourselves to the, to the, to the world. I would say that's a little bit what the word repent means. He could have, he could, he, you could throw in there that that's the first phrase is repentance. But be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that, that's our focus down here on God. What I'm, trying, what I'm trying to get you to see is that uh, I think sometimes, I mean, and I've, I've kind of heard this, uh, I mean, I've, I've heard it sometimes from students coming to SMBI. They say, all I've ever heard, all I hear is, you know, don't look to the world. And, I, and they hear sermons about uh, worldliness and don't do this and don't do that. And, and they're saying, why don't we just preach, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and just preach the salvation message? And I, I can understand that. that that's, that's a valid Point. Yet, we do also need to, 
Paul preaches it. You've got to get your focus off the world before you can get your focus on Christ. The other example here is in Luke chapter 18, verse 18. Let's look at the story of the rich young ruler and try to analyze what's happening here. Luke 18, verse 18. And a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Who? There Jesus has got the question. What do I need to do to be saved? Well, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Isn't that what Jesus should say? But it's not what Jesus says. And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good save one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. And he said, All these have I kept from my youth up. Now, uh, we, we can debate that. You know, did this guy keep all the commandments perfectly? I really doubt it. No one can keep the commandments perfectly. Was he a good, did he live a good, clean, moral life? Yeah, probably. And we actually find out, you know, he, he didn't put God above everything else. Je that's really where Jesus meets him here. When Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Yet lackest thou one thing, sell all that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Now, Jesus' answer there, he doesn't say anything about believing. He just says, sell all that you have, and, and come and follow me, and you'll have eternal life. So what's Jesus doing? What's he trying to get with this man? Well, here's a man who's got his focus on his riches. You can tell him to believe on God, but that's not the need of the hour. The need of the hour is he's got to quit focusing on the world. He's got to quit focusing on his riches. So that's where Jesus meets him. That's what Jesus focuses on first. Now, if the, if the, if the fellow would have sold all his goods and come followed Christ, then Christ would have told him, led him to put his faith in him. But you can't put your faith, you can't put your faith in God until you take your focus off the world. You can't serve God and man. You can't do both. So Jesus isn't preaching a works gospel here to this man. He's simply focusing on that this man needs repentance. He needs, he needs to get his focus off of the world. So if, if, if you're working with someone, trying to lead someone to Christ, one of the things that you have to do is to try to figure out where they're at in their journey. If that person has their focus on the world, you've got to have them get their focus off the world, realize their need of Christ, and realize that they're a sinner bound for hell. And out of that's going to come a desperation. And then when they come to faith in Christ, they're going to grab a hold of Christ because they know, they know that they're on the way to hell. They know that they're going to die. They know that the way of the world is, is, is going to lead them in the wrong places. But if, if someone's serving the world, and it's, that's not really fulfilling. You get a measure of pleasure out of it. But you go knock on their door and say, I've... I've uh, would you like to be happy the rest of your life and go to heaven when you die? Uh, say this prayer after me and uh, you can be a Christian and go to heaven and be happy the rest of your life. They might say, oh, well, that sounds okay. Sure, 
So you lead them in prayer. And, uh, you know, you, you go your way and put another check mark in your book. I led another soul to Christ. And nothing really happened at all. Because they're still focused on the world. You've got, you've, you've got to, someone said you've got, before you can get someone saved, you've got to make them a sinner. And that's really the essence of, of what I'm trying to say. They've got to be needy uh, in order to really develop a deep faith. This man, this man refused to repent is really what goes in that blank down there at the end. Okay, what, uh, there at the end, conclusion on the diagram down there at the bottom, that's, that's where I'm at now, on the bottom of page three. What, what is the gospel and what is salvation? Scripture says that salvation is a gift. So let's see if we can figure this out. So I'm going to, again, my artwork's not the best, but... You can probably identify that. There I have a, a gift. Uh, let's put some contents into it. Happiness. Uh, forgiveness of sin. And heaven. That's a... That's a very typical approach to what the, the gift is. Um, and I would say even in our own circles, I found that quite prevalent in some places. Um, the idea is if you become a Christian, your sins are forgiven you, you lead a happy life, and you will get to heaven. Is that right? Yeah. Sure, it's partially right. Um, but... We, we, need, we, need to, we need to fix this. There's more to it than that. So let's, let's take another shot at it. Try the gift again. Okay, so happiness, forgiveness, But before we made it too easy, this okay, this over here was was a free gift. We made it too easy. We just said, say a prayer after me, and or come down the aisle, and we'll lead you in a prayer, and you can be saved. Uh, so there's some other things you need to do. Now, here's again where my artwork kind of breaks down. But you know how you can take strings and you know you make. Uh, Add those to the package, so that's what I'm doing here. These are my strings attached to the package. We add strings to the salvation, and we say things like this. You need to make Jesus Lord. You need to give up everything. Uh, you need to, maybe we use the word surrender. Surrender. Um, 
phrases like that. So now, if I come knock on your door, I'm not just going to say, believe in Jesus Christ and you can have this. I'm going to say, you need to give up everything. You need to make Jesus Lord of your life and you need to surrender. Uh, And then I'll give you the free gift. But is that free? I got strings attached. There's a cost to it. Now, there is a cost to salvation. Yeah, I understand that, but I'm, I'm trying to illustrate something here. Uh, I thought salvation said, Ephesians says it's a, it's a gift. Uh, one thing I have fun with sometimes on the, in the, in the board when I'm doing this in the book of Ephesians, I'll write on the, on the board with my students that salvation is a completely free gift. And then I ask, so what's the difference between a completely free gift and a gift? Oh, we should take the word completely out. So what's the difference between a free gift and a gift? <laughs> well, a gift is completely free. So I, you shouldn't really have to add the words completely free to it. It's, a gift is a gift. If salvation is a gift, it's free. So what, what's going on here? I don't really like either version of it. Let's try another one. I think the problem is in the contents of the package. The problem is the contents of the package are wrong. Now, yeah... We can, we can keep what's in there. That's a part of the package. Happiness, forgiveness, heaven. But what you do is you just take the strings and they're part of the package. Uh, let, let me explain everything. Your Lord, Lordship, surrender, Is lordship a positive thing, or is it something that you have to do to be a Christian? Is surrendering a positive thing, or is it something that you have to do in order to be a Christian? Let me ask you this. Would you like to have someone, instead of living your own life your own way, and being miserable, and never having peace and victory, and always, when you, you know, having the hangovers and everything that goes with all of that stuff, do you want that? Or would you like someone who loves you and cares for you, who will take care of you, who will be there for you, who will be the Lord of your life, who will lead you lovingly and kindly as a loving, kind, tender shepherd? Would you like someone like that to be the Lord and master of your life? Would you like to surrender to him? I say that's not an external requirement or something added on. That's a part of the package. That's what salvation is. Salvation is not just happiness and forgiveness and getting to heaven. When you're saved, part of what you get is Jesus is Lord of your life. He will walk with you. He will help you in victory over sin. It's not something that you have to do that's added on. It's a part of the package. We've, we've, I think sometimes we've taken 
some of the contents of what salvation is. And I don't know, possibly because of, of influence from, from I'm not sure where all, we've, we don't like this, so we want to make sure that people are really saved, so we add all kinds of requirements to it. Now, what's, what's difficult is, it's not really this, my subject tonight, is how do you, when you're talking to someone, how do you take this package to them and offer it in an attractive way? And that's a big question. But I think it can be done with proper teaching. It can be done with a proper approach. It can be done when we have a godly, caring character. But I think that's what we need to do. This is the package that we need to bring to people. We don't want to bring this package over here. Going back to page two. Well, I think maybe we'll stop there for tonight. And we'll, we'll pick up a couple of the things there on page two tomorrow night. But really what I, the key thing I wanted to do tonight was lay that foundation of what salvation is and how we obtain salvation. Because that foundation of what true belief is and what salvation is really forms very much of a, of a foundation for the rest of the book then. All right, I'll turn it back over to...